We will start reading where we left off last week, which would be in verse 6. And so in a moment we'll read, but I want to give an introduction first. Recently, some photographers developed this system where they took a series, in fact, 9,100 images through a microscope at a painting by a Dutch artist named Vermeer. Uh, and it's a famous painting called The Girl with the Pearl Earring. And they took this series of images, zoomed up close, and then stitched them all together. So what they have, and you can go see it online, is, a, is an image with more than a, a billion pixels of this painting. And you can zoom in with incredible detail. Zoomed all the way in. Uh, this is, this is kind of what you'd see. You, you can see the, the little micro blobs of paint, the flecks of pigment that go into making colors. You can see the, the cracks that run through the, the canvas now that it's several centuries old. But it's kind of hard to tell what you're looking at there, right? If I would have just thrown this image up, you would have thought, it's like a dirty scrambled egg. I mean, what, what, what are we seeing here? The next image is pulled back a little bit more. So we were looking right here. Now pull back, you can see the, the, the cracking that continues there, how this pigment contrasts with the others around it, but you still don't really know what you're looking at. This is the full image. Maybe you've seen this before. Uh, we were looking right there, right at the little fleck of her eye. Well, it's interesting to be able to zoom in and see that. And, and I would imagine for a, an art historian or an artist learning to paint, there's some value in that because you can see maybe the way in which this work is done. You can see some things about the process. But you can't really see the picture until you, until you pull back. And you're like, oh, it's a girl, right? But you kind of had to step back to see that. Well, in the same way when we're studying the word and we're figuring out how to teach on different things, sometimes some messages we need to zoom in really close. And that was part of chapter 6 we did that. We had one message where we just looked at three verses and in those three verses, there were two words that we spent most of our time on. That's this zooming in really close, because it was necessary to understand that. But sometimes we need, to, we need to step back. And we need to step back in order to grasp the whole of what's trying to be communicated. And I think that's the way it is with 1 Corinthians chapter 7. There are some details in there that we might have questions on. He'll be speaking about things like singleness and marriage and, and divorce and some things that it is helpful to look at up close, but there's a danger of missing the big point that he's going to make there. And, and so what we're going to do today is look at a little bit more scripture than maybe we typically would. We're going to cover all the way to the end of the chapter. And what that means is we're going to only be able to skim a little bit on the surface. But it's intentional because the big idea I think we could miss if we only zoom in on singles or on marriage and divorce. So what we'll do this week is we'll cover a big section, and the next week we'll come back to at least one part of it. And the big idea that runs throughout this whole section, and I want you to know it before we even start to read it, is an argument saying that you can remain as you are. You don't need a change of status to be content in Christ, to be useful for Christ, you're free to pursue change if you want to, but it's not necessary. And he's going to apply that to singles who want to be married, to married people who still wish they were single, to, to slaves in an indentured servitude who want to be free, um, 
to an engaged couple. He's going to apply it to a number of different places. And you're going to see these exceptions all along. He's going to say, you can, you can remain as you are. You can serve Christ as a single. You can serve Christ in marriage. You can serve Christ as a slave. Did I just lose the sound there? Okay, my light's on here. How does it look there, Jim? Okay, we'll see. I'll keep going. If we need to just put up a, another mic, let me, let me know, and we can do that. Brad, I might task you with that if you think that that's necessary, okay? All right. He's going to apply it to all these different scenarios and say, you don't need to change this status to be content, to serve Christ, to have a godly life. You can, but you don't need to, okay? And we're going to see in all these different perspectives, all these different situations. We still don't have any sound? It's hard for me to tell sometimes up here, so let me know. Okay, I see some thumbs up, so thank you for that. Um, we will... Uh, We'll just keep rolling, and I'll just trust you to kind of jump in if we need to. Okay. All right. Pick it up in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 7. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called while he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Now, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry... You have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep 
as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as, those who, as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. If any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, and has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. I think that I also have the Spirit of God. A lot there, a lot to read. But there's a theme that runs throughout, and we're going to try to pull that out, and then at least next week circle back to to some things with more detail. And, And the first group that he speaks to is singles. He's going to come back to them uh, in verses 25 and on, so there'll be a part two there to singles, but a few verses, he turns to singles here. And what he essentially says is there are some advantages to singleness, but freedom to marry. It doesn't require all Christians to marry. In fact, there are some real advantages of singleness, and it'll be developed especially in the second section, verses 25 to 40. Both singleness and marriage in this passage are described as gifts. Did you notice that? Look at at verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all men were, even as I myself am, and he's, he's single. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Saying to the one that's married, that's a gift. But to the one who's single, there's a gift there as well. There are some advantages to that singleness. It's far too common for churches to treat marriage with children as the ideal and anything else as a second-class life. And that's not how the Word describes that. The overall picture of the Bible speaks positively of marriage, but here especially it shows some virtues of singleness. We saw some of the positive sides of marriage last week, those five P's for which God created marriage of of procreation and partnership and pleasure and is a picture of Christ in the church and and to support purity. We we saw that. We see passages like this in Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Speaks well of marriage. So we don't want to take this passage in 1 Corinthians 7 and assume that the Bible has a negative view of marriage. It does not. But here, speaks to some of the advantages of singleness. There can be good advantages to singleness. 25 to 40 is going to develop that more when he returns to this. But a point at this this spot is that we can learn to be content in whatever situation of life, including even in singleness. 
But we have to remember when we're talking about singleness that there are some who are in that situation and they're content and they wish the church would kind of affirm that a little bit more. There's others, though, that are single and they don't want to be. They, they want to marry. And for both, it's going to be key to learn to be content in that spot while recognizing a freedom to change, to change that status, to marry if you want to, which is running throughout this also. I think, unfortunately, the way too many singles pursue dating in marriage doesn't set them up for contentment. It sets them up for frustration and heartache and discontentment. Uh, Chip Ingram, he, he talks about this by comparing a, a Hollywood approach to romance and more of a biblical, a, a God-centered approach to romance. And you can see with these different approaches that it affects contentment very much with a what he calls a Hollywood model for romance. See if you can picture a lot of movie plot lines in this, right? The, there'll be four steps to both of these. First step for this one is find the right person, right? The first step, you gotta, you gotta find them. And it might be through some cute mix-up, right? Your lattes get confused at Starbucks, so you get the wrong one. And, or you're at the dog park and your leashes get tangled. Or you, know, you sit next to them at, at a lab. But, but the point is you've got to be on the lookout at all times. Because you never know when the one is going to pop up. And so you end up filtering every person you meet through this grid of are they a potential spouse or are they not? And, and always on the lookout. Next, fall in love. And it's this subjective, mystical thing that you know when you're in it, but nobody can quite explain it. And it's this feeling that you get. And, and that's what you're hunting for. And if you'll find that, then you can fix all your hopes and dreams on this person for your future fulfillment. All your Christmases will be happy after this, right? Life will be good because now you've found the one and you're setting your hopes and dreams on them and you're in love. But what happens when that falls apart? Repeat it as many times as needed. That it's just not quite the right person or the right timing or the right setup, but, but it's encouraged to just kind of continue this cycle Friends, that is not setting somebody up for contentment. He contrasts it, I think, helpfully with God's formula. Not that there's like one passage in the Bible we can go to that outlines this, but saying from a kind of a stepped back perspective of how should we approach life and romance, he says this, be the right person. Rather than focusing on finding the right person, the Bible talks a lot more about who you are to be as you grow in godly maturity is you're seeing refinement in different areas of your life. You're learning to deal with conflict. You're learning to be in a position to provide. You're growing yourself. Rather than constantly on the hunt and on the lookout, you're, you're growing. Walk in love. Rather than trying to land on this mystical sense of falling in love. No, the Bible says to walk in love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is gentle. Love is long-suffering. Love is not rude. And whether it's towards this person that there's an interest that comes up in or just your family or friends this should characterize the believer third fix your hope on God and seek to please him through this relationship if you're in a relationship so not fixing your hope on this person but but no my hope is still in the Lord I like this person this relationship seems like it's progressing well but my hope is not in them it's in the Lord if failure occurs 
can still repeat steps one, two, and three, but you're in a situation of contentment and growth rather than continuing to have this be shattered. There's freedom to marry. Notice how this passage affirms. And it will affirm it again in verse 39. She's free to marry. But singles need to approach that in a way that sets them up for contentment and doesn't see it as just a status that needs to change for real life to begin. Once I get married, then real life begins. No. But we also need a church culture that values singles and singleness, that keeps singles involved in the life of the body, not on the periphery. Families that open their doors very literally opens the doors of their homes to singles and has them in small group Bible studies and invites them into their life and fellowship so that singles don't seem like they're on the margins until, until they marry. But now it turns. And it turns to marriage, back to marriage. And it turns to couples that are kind of in the opposite scenario. Rather than singles thinking, oh, if I could just get married, I'll be content. Speaking to those that are married who are thinking, if I could just be single. And what he'll say is have a commitment to marriage. But he does give some exceptions here for divorce. And this is something that is a loaded passage, I know, and we'll look at it in more detail next week. But it is, again, this opposite problem, but still the same big idea. If I just had a change of status here, from in this case, married to single, then I could be content, then I can serve God. And he addresses it with a couple different scenarios. Look at verse 10. It says, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, meaning Jesus himself spoke to this, that the wife should not leave her husband. And then he goes on to say, the husband should not divorce his wife. And he's talking here to two believers that are married and wanting to hit eject. Not for reasons that Jesus gives, not for sexual immorality and adultery, uh, but, but they're wanting to hit eject. And he says, no, r- remain. Your, your happiness, your contentment, your following of Christ is not going to be found on the other side of this divorce. R- remain. And then he speaks to somebody who's a believer married to an unbeliever. Verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, meaning Jesus didn't speak directly to this. It's not saying this is less authoritative, but he's saying Jesus didn't address it directly. It says if her brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. You can imagine a scenario in the church, and it's one that we would find today, where believers married to an unbeliever. Maybe one of them came to Christ after the marriage and one did not. Maybe both thought they were believers, but one ended up walking away from the faith. Maybe, maybe a believer married an unbeliever to begin with and only later realized, oh, I should not have done that. And they're wondering, what should I do? I feel like I'm stuck. They're not following Christ in the same way I am. Maybe, maybe the solution is divorce. He says, no, no, remain as you are. You can serve Christ there. And he gives an exception. If they, if they leave, if the unbeliever leaves, you can let them go. You're, you're free. But otherwise, he says, no, remain. There's likely a lot of questions there. What scenarios would divorce be acceptable? Is remarriage allowed after divorce? There's a lot that's loaded there. And we'll come back to that next week. But I don't want to lose our theme. Because this isn't just dropped in there so we'd have some instruction about divorce. It's part of this same big idea, running from singles to now married. And then notice how it continues on. So I hope you keep your Bibles open because there's a lot of territory we're covering. But look down at verse 17. Speaking now after just saying, no, stay, stay where you are in this marriage. Only, verse 17, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. 
And he'll go on and give some other scenarios. And his point, I think, is this. You can learn contentment in this calling. A freedom to change in some situations. He's giving exceptions all throughout. Singles, yeah, you're free to marry. In divorce, in certain exceptions, you're, you're free to let them go. And he's going to give some other situations here. But he's saying your contentment, your following Christ does not require that change of status. And I love the way this is worded here. Look again. Verse 17, it says, the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each. It says, if you're in this situation, you're single and you want to be. You're single and you don't want to be. You're married and the marriage is rough, but there's not an exception there for divorce. It doesn't qualify for that. You're married and your spouse isn't a believer. He's going to go on and give other situations here. Somebody who was circumcised prior to coming to Christ or not circumcised. Somebody who was even found in a situation of slavery. He says, you are, this is God's assignment for you right now. If you can change that status, you're, you're welcome to change it. The, the slave was told, you're this indentured servitude, and we'll talk about it in a moment. He says, you're, you're free to leave that, but you can serve Christ where you are. Here's why this is good news. You might find yourself in a situation that you are stuck in. You think, yes, I'm single, and Valentine's Day is very appropriate to be talking about all this. Like, don't they call it like Singles Awareness Day? Right? So you're thinking, I'm single, I don't, I don't want to be. And it doesn't mean you can't pursue marriage. This passage says all throughout. But what it says is that is an assignment for you right now. And you don't know how long that would go. God has called you in that right now. And you can walk with him right now in that. If you're in a marriage that's hard, you can walk with God right now in that. And he gives these other scenarios too. Circumcision might not seem like an issue for us today, but it was there. You would have Jewish believers coming to Christ, Gentile believers coming to Christ, and the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were feeling pressure from the Jewish believers to, to, to undergo circumcision. And Paul's saying, no, no, you don't need to. Uh, the opposite problem was sometimes occurring as well, where a Jewish believer may have been feeling cultural pressure to, to undo that circumcision. And there was actually a medical procedure for that, that the term used here for being uncircumcised is the literal term for that procedure at the time. And saying, no, you, does it require that? And, and then he speaks to these who are, who are in slavery. You've got to remember, this is a, like what we'd call more of like an indentured servitude, where somebody sells themselves into a temporary experience of slavery. Sometimes, though, that ends up being longer. Sometimes they can't get out of it, and they're stuck in it. Sometimes they're poorly treated. And so they're wondering, how can I follow Christ in this? And he says, you can. That, that, is, that is an assignment for you right now. If you can, if you can get your freedom do that. He, he affirms that throughout. He's not saying you're stuck there. There's not a passivity that's encouraged, but he's saying you can, you can follow Christ there. You can follow Christ there. Look at verse 24. I love the way this is worded. It says, brethren, each one is to remain, and that's a term we've seen over and over again, but it says is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Whatever condition in which you find yourself can be affirmed that the Lord is with you in that. The Lord has in some way assigned that to you now. He has called you in and to that now. You're free to change some of these circumstances, but it's not necessary. You can walk with Christ there. Do we sometimes imply 
that to be really spiritual, really mature, somebody needs to be in Christ and married and have kids. And the more kids, the better. And they need to homeschool those kids. And it needs to be with a classical curriculum, right? And you need to have a white-collar job. And you need to own your own home. But you can't have too much debt, right? And we make all these Christ and, where some of those are good things. I mean, they're good things. But we make it as, like, like necessary. Where what's affirmed, I think, in this passage is follow Christ where you are. Freedom to marry, freedom to stay single, freedom to, to change jobs from a job that is miserable, but, but you can serve Christ there. And he returns to this topic of singleness. And it's essentially a part two of what we saw. He comes back and gives with more detail some advantages to singleness, but a freedom to marry. He turns, I think, to a very specific situation of Virgin, he says, which I think is a way of talking about a young unmarried woman uh, who's engaged. She's engaged to a man. So, so they're single in the sense that they're not married yet, but they're betrothed. And, and I say that because he refers to the situation of virgins. And then verse 27, he says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And I think this is the point that runs through the, the end of the chapter. So even in verse 36, as we were reading this, you might have been scratching your head because it says, if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly, this is verse 36, again, unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter. In the New American Standard, it puts the word daughter in there, but it's in italics because it's not in the original. He's trying to, trying to say, we think this is talking about a situation where a father is deciding whether to give his daughter in marriage. But if you have a different translation, if you're looking at an ESV, for example, uh, I think an NIV, a few others, CSB, they, they don't talk about it being a father and his virgin daughter. They talk about a, a man and his betrothed. The language allows for either. The Greek behind it allows for either. It's a context decision. And, and I think the context actually favors uh, the other translations, not the American Standard, that all throughout he's talking about an engaged couple. We've got some engaged couples here, both the service and the last one. They're, they're engaged. They're not yet married. They're not husband and wife, but they're promised to each other. And they're wondering, what should we do? Should, should we continue in this? Should we not? And, and so he uses that as an opportunity to talk again about the advantages of singleness, but the freedom to marry. A key part of this is how we interpret verse 26. Verse 26. It says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. His point appears to be there is a present distress that they're going through, likely an increased period of persecution, that they were starting here, and over the next 10 years, it's going to get worse and worse. And he's saying, in light of this present distress, it might be good to remain as you are, because marriage is going to bring more challenges, more difficulties in, in light of this distress. You can imagine Paul as a single man, as he travels all over on these mission trips, and he experiences severe persecution at times of being beaten and run out of city and being arrested. How much more of that pain would be multiplied if he had a wife and kids in tow along with him or at home and he was worried about them. Essentially he's saying, I would spare you that. 
In light of the present distress, this increasing persecution, I would spare you that. And it may be good to wait. The tone continues the same throughout, though. Remain, but you're free to marry. Verse 28, if you marry, you have not sinned. Verse 35, I say this for your benefit, not to put a restraint upon you. Verse 39, she is free to marry. So this is not locking you guys in, right? Austin and Grace, where you guys are, this isn't saying don't marry, right? You can, there's freedom there. Um, but it's saying there's present distress and there's times that it might be good to hold off on that. That, that might still be somebody today if maybe you're in a challenging grad program, you're working 80 hours a week, might not be good to marry right then. Maybe there's significant personal wounds and hurts that you're still working through. might not be good to marry right then. There was an increased period of persecution. It might not be wise to marry right then, but there would still be freedom to. I want you to look at what's affirmed in verse 29 and on. It says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. There's this increased period of persecution, but here I think there's just a sense of urgency for believers. And he's saying, those who have wives should be as though they had none. What does that mean? Does that mean, like, men, that if you forgot Valentine's Day, you're, you're off the hook? You're like, honey, I'm sorry, it's biblical. You know, he said, he who has a wife should be as if he had none. So I don't think that's what it's saying here. I don't. I think it fits with this broader point where he's saying, you to be content and serve Christ where you're at. And those who are married, their marriage is not the most important thing about them. And their marriage is not the goal of their life. A good marriage is not even the goal of life. Life is about knowing Christ and making him known. And so he says, in light of that urgency, we should live, even those who are married, as if the marriage is not the most important thing. We should live to please the Lord. We should live... Look at verse 35, part of this same point. With undistracted devotion to the Lord. So, so what does that mean practically? It, it means that maybe a, a married couple might have to be willing to let go of some time with their spouse. Maybe it means on a Sunday morning, family with young kids, the dad might need to step in and, and do more care for the younger ones because his wife has an opportunity to teach Sunday school. And, and the husband might be thinking, man, it should be easier if my wife was here, but... I'm going I'm to hold this loosely because she has an opportunity to impact other kids for the kingdom, and I want her to do that. Or it might mean a wife kind of holds loosely one night with her husband where he wants to go be, to, to hang out with this non-Christian friend from work, and they're going to go play basketball, they're going to go bowling, they're going to go hunting because he's thinking, I, I want to try to share Christ with this guy. And, and she might be feeling, Man, I'd love to have you here, but I'm going to hold this loosely because there's something more important than this night together. There'd be ways to abuse this. There'd be ways that a man or woman could essentially abandon their family for ministry pursuits that would be wrong, would be an overreaction. But he's saying there should be an urgency, whether married or single, that this marriage or the pursuit of marriage is not the most important thing in my life. There's a bigger picture of knowing Christ and making him known, and my marriage fits within that, but as partners together. Likewise, he points to possessions there. The end of verse 30, he says, those who buy as though they did not possess. 
doesn't mean you can't buy things, but you shouldn't be owned by things. You, you shouldn't live for the next phone, the next car, the next house, the next outfit, the next whatever it might be. You, you should hold those things loosely, knowing they're not the most important thing. So an engaged couple then is welcome to marry or not. Neither is sin. Both have advantages. There's practical issues that should be considered. In verse 36, it talks about if she's past her youth, meaning both they find themselves getting older, maybe they're free to marry. That might be a good time for them to marry. But if there's other circumstances, they might hold back on that. Neither is required for them to serve Christ. All right, we covered a lot of ground. I know some of it just kind of along the surface, but I want to, I want to bring three points to, to bear uh, for some application of this. One will be to singles, one will be to married, and then one will be to, to everybody. For singles, considering marriage, they should ask themselves five questions. So somebody who's single, whether they want to be or not, whether they would like to be married or not, they, some questions they should ask themselves. And these Warren Worsby articulated them this way, and I think it's helpful. The first is, what is my gift from God? Paul had affirmed both marriage and singleness as a particular gift with opportunities there. And I think a common way to interpret that I think is good is that there might be some who in singleness are very content in their singleness. They're, they're surrounded with other relationships. They're not living a life of solitude. They're pouring themselves into others. They're serving in the body. They're not on the margins. And they're content. They shouldn't feel this pressure to move towards marriage. But somebody might be single and really have a strong desire for marriage and, and find some challenges in personal purity that are talked about here. And it could be that marriage would be a much better fit for them. Am I marrying a believer? Somebody who is looking towards marriage, is this other person a believer? In verse 39, speaking to a woman who's unmarried because her husband passed away, he said she's free to marry, but only in the Lord. You need to marry another believer. You need to marry somebody who's following Christ like you so that you can serve Christ together. So is this person, are they a believer? Are the circumstances such that marriage is right? Is my personal life in such a place that it would be good for me to bring somebody else into it? Or am I still such a mess from baggage of my life that I haven't worked through that maybe I need to spend some time processing this? Maybe I'm in a grad program. Maybe there's these things going on that would be wise to just pause. Fourth, how will marriage affect my service for Christ? Can we serve together? Is this person a great match for me? Do our gifts complement each other? Can, can we serve together? And then last, am I prepared to enter into this union for life? I only briefly touched on the subject of divorce. Um, but what we did see is this affirmation that you're to remain married with some very limited exceptions. And, and so somebody on the cusp about to enter in has to ask Am I willing to make that commitment? There's a lot of uncertainties. I don't know about how our life is going to unfold, but am I, am I willing to make this commitment, this union for life? For married couples, married couples should serve Christ in and through their marriage. In and through their marriage. Making their marriage a, a strong place so that it pictures Christ well, like we saw last week, as a husband loves and his wife supports that leadership and so it's a joy-filled place, not merely a mechanism to have ministry accomplished, but it's a strong place. And then 
How can we serve together? How, how can I free up my spouse for some period of time in some ways that will help them to serve? How can we bring somebody into our orbit together? And, and then finally, all believers should try, stop trying to find contentment and significance in their change of status. That's what runs throughout this for all of us. People often think that their happiness is going to be just on the other side of a life change, right? Kids in here might think, ah, once I'm in high school, once I'm in college, once I'm out of college, once I have a better job, once, and there's always something else. Or a single person might think, once I'm married, a married person might think, if I could just be out of this marriage, Right, somebody in a job that they feel stuck in thinks, if I just didn't have this job, you might think, if I just wasn't in Pocatello, right? If I just lived in a more rural area, or if I lived in a bigger city, like there's always something else. And this passage says, no, you can serve Christ where you are. That is a place assigned to you in this moment. You can serve him there. The most important thing about you is not this status of married, single, or any of these other things. It is, are you in Christ? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you seen that your sin is a barrier between you and God? You've recognized that. You've confessed it. You've turned in repentance. You've turned to Jesus. You've embraced him. You're trusting in him. These other things are good, but they're not central. Christ is central. Let's pray.